the point is not just to yell, stand with war in history and say stop. It's to uh, inspire with a, a much better and more compelling alternative how we can enable more human beings, every person, to live up to their potential. And I think that's what's so that's what's so compelling to sort of differentiate from perhaps how the the conservative movement and the libertarian movement and the classical liberal movement and those who believe in human freedom and flourishing um, from some of the ideas that are currently out there. That is Evan Feinberg. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing reclaiming the American dream, the role of private individuals and voluntary associations, written by Richard C. Cornell. Our guest today is Evan Feinberg, who leads the Poverty Priority Initiative. I was first introduced to this book a little over a year ago. And I'll get into some of that in the podcast. And when I proposed to Evan the idea of talking about the book, he was very excited about it. He was ready to go that day. Evan has a lot of passion about this work, about this book, and we dig into it as we go through the podcast. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you get a chance to read the book. It's fantastic. I remember going into Matt Dickerson's office to talk about the uh, Poverty Priority Initiative. And during the discussion, he said, look, the first thing you should do is you should order a book titled Reclaiming the American Dream by Richard Cornell. And I said, OK, why? And he said, because Evan loves that book and it's kind of what we do here. So you should buy the book and then you should talk to Evan about it. And so here we are. I bought the book. I read it and it was fantastic. And when I sent the invitation to you to talk about the book, you jumped on it. I mean, you were like, yes, let's do it right now. <laughs> that I, I'm curious. I know why I like it, but I'm curious why why is this book so important to you? Why why is this book so powerful to you? Well, thanks, Dwayne. And it's really exciting to be with you to talk about it. You know, Dick Cornell was, in my opinion, one of the the sort of uh, giants of the modern classical liberal movement, and he's one of those giants that very few people know about. And so I'm on a I'm on a uh, quest to make sure that his ideas become the prevailing ones in the movement to empower people uh, from the bottom up. So what Dick Cornell did, he he, he the book's called Reclaiming the American Dream, but what he really wanted to call the book was the unfinished revolution. And it's because he believed that the principles of the Declaration of Independence were were sort of life-giving principles. They were they were uh, they were the most important principles that we had as a country. And those principles were not just about the role of government in society. Those principles were how we should think about human beings 
and they should inspire us to respect the dignity and worth of one another and uh, and live and work well together. And so, you know, I put Dick Cornell in the lineage of Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, and in fact, he does so himself in the first uh, chapter of his book. And he's really trying to call us as Americans to understand that our principles, yes, they they are about the role of government in society, but they're also about our role as neighbors, our role in communities. And in, in doing so, he basically uh, breathes life into a way of thinking about our institutions that I think is much more robust than we often uh, think about the role of government, communities, and business uh, in particular. And, uh, and because of that, it's, it's become a real manifesto for me as I think about the role of communities and the institution of communities to advance our vision to help every person rise. One thing that sticks out to me, and I, I realized this again when I was rereading it recently, there are so many things that he talks about in this book that I'm reading and I'm saying, this is the same argument we're having today. This is the same discussion we're having today. And just in his, in his personal summary at the beginning, and this was this was written back in what sixty three sixty four. Uh, well, yeah, I mean it was published in nineteen sixty five. So okay. yes. So he wrote in those days the conservative task seemed simple to me. Simple to me. We needed to alert people to the dangers of big government, then persuade them that we could only have a free society if we strictly limited government's powers. And once we'd convinced a working majority, it would be simple enough to pass the laws that would cut the government down to its natural size. And this is the conversation that's been going on since this book was published, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that for many years, people have thought of either the conservative or libertarian cause as being to stand athwart history and yell stop and uh, prevent the rise of, of big government, so to speak. And uh, that, that approach has gotten us nowhere. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also moved by Hayek's why I'm not a conservative essay. Um, and it's why I don't use the word conservative even personally, because I think that it gets misconstrued to, to be just a philosophy of, of preventing and stopping progress. But what Cornell is offering us is a, a a better approach to say what this movement is should be and is all about is helping to drive human progress it is the principles of human progress it is freeing people to uh, be their best selves and we know that the institution of government isn't capable of that and as people get left behind and people then seek to as he puts it nationalize community and essentially grow these big top-down government solutions to the problem, they're trusting the wrong institution to drive human progress. And so the, the point is not just to yell, stand authority history and say stop. It's to uh, inspire with a, a much better and more compelling alternative how we can enable more human beings, every person, to live up to their potential. And I think that's what's so that's what's so compelling to sort of differentiate from perhaps how the the conservative movement and the libertarian movement and the classical liberal movement and those who believe in human freedom and flourishing um, from some of the ideas that are currently out there. There was a moment in his life where he was he was writing for a newspaper and 
he published this essay and it was very philosophical and it was very principled, but it wasn't very, I guess, human. It wasn't, uh, yeah, I'll just say it like that. It wasn't very human. And his editor just was aghast. He wrote that he thought he was going to give him a, a, you know, a coronary. And he said, you need to go out and see these people that you're writing about. And so he went out that, you know, people were, were milling about, there was no work. And he realized that, that just writing about philosophy was, wasn't doing it. And he, and he wrote, it seemed that I had as a citizen, a choice between two unacceptable alternatives. One, I could choke down my conservative belief and urge my congressman to vote for government programs to help distress people. Or two, I could close my eyes to the human need and urge votes against any government action. Humanity and freedom seem to be in per- permanent conflict. And that's where we really start talking about what he calls the independent sector. He gets into it a little bit later in the book, but he identifies that there's really this mentality that there's, there's, there's only two, two organizations out there really that are, that are taking care that can handle problems. There's the public sector or government, and there's the private sector or business. But he says there's a third, and that's the independent sector. Tell me about that. I'll go back to some of his uh, philosophical roots, and that's Alexis de Tocqueville. So, you know, de Tocqueville uh, came over from uh, from from Western Europe, and ostensibly he was coming to study the American criminal justice system, but he never had any intention of doing so. He was hearing tales in Europe about what was making America so dynamic while Western Europe was in many ways stagnating economically. He wanted to know what was going on. So his traveling partner uh, mostly wrote about the penal system. Tocqueville did a little bit as well. But he uh, goes on his travels, um, you know, for the purpose of later writing Democracy in America. When he's traveling, he first says, well, I want to know what's happening in their seat of power. So he goes to Washington, D.C., and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's what we you know, essentially what we know it to be today, right? Not a lot of good things are happening. Uh, in fact, it was it was a pretty sleepy town at that point. And he's like, this isn't where the dynamism is coming from. So then he travels to state capitals, expecting to find it maybe in more local government. Maybe it's a more just decentralized governmental approach. And he's like, it's not happening here either. And then he goes out in our communities and he starts saying, man, this is so incredible. When Americans see problems of any kind, they seek each other out. And they unite to solve those problems. And and I'm paraphrasing, but he says that they become a power that one sees from afar, a power uh, that speaks and to which one listens. And Tocqueville's basically saying the most incredible stuff happening in America today is how is that how Americans are coming together of problems. And he uses two different types of problems when he describes them: commercial and social. They said they see a commercial problem and they build a market for it. They build new products for it. They see a social problem, the need for education or, or, or you know, prisons or um, helping the needy. And they're they're finding innovative ways of solving those problems. And that distinction between commercial and social was essentially how the American people thought about what, what we broadly think of as the voluntary sector up through the New Deal. It would be common knowledge for Americans to think of there being three sectors, and I'm going to get wonky for a second. The delineation between these sectors is the motivation of mutual benefit. 
what is the motivation of the actors in the sector? In the government sector, the motivation is, is, and I don't mean this derisively, it's coercion, right? We have rules and there are penalties for not following the rules. So you can't murder. If you murder, you get put in jail. Your motivation hopefully should be that you care for your fellow man. But at the end of the day, if, if you're pushed to the brink, uh, the fact that you would go to jail if you committed the crime is a motivation of action. In the business sector, your motivation for, for action is, is profit, hopefully good profit, right? The, the mutual benefit yields you economic profit uh, with your fellow man and woman. Uh, the what 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 Cornell is saying, and then and then I'll wrap up this little diatribe. What Cornell is saying is that there's also an independent sector, or a social sector, or community sector, or however you want to think about it, where people are motivated to act out of service to one another. And if you think about it, it explains so much of human activity. I don't. I my my wife and I, our marriage is not built on a relationship where I hope to economically profit. My relationship with my uh, my kids, my friends, when I help a friend move, uh, when I go to church, these things are, are not motivated uh, by, uh, by economic profit or something else. But I find meaning and purpose in relationship with other people, my desire to serve them, and my desire to get value from being in relationship with them. That is the independent sector. It's both informal in our associations and it's formal in you know, nonprofit organizations or, or, or churches or, or synagogues or whatever it might be. And that is perhaps the most important sector in America then and now. When, when you go through the book, I mean, he builds it up before he starts really getting into the independent sector. He talks again. I go back to the fact that there are things written in this that are uh, – <laughs> That are, uh, you know, they apply today so so clearly. He talks about why conservatives can't win, and he says, well, it's because they they they're all they're all philosophy. They they want to go out and talk philosophy, but they can't oppose a program. He he writes, they're coming to realize they can't cannot win without a program, without answers for the problems that trouble people. They have no resources with which to bid against government for public responsibility. They protest without a program and appear to be rebels without a cause. This is an awkward stance. But then he talks about why the liberals can't win, and he says they can't win because we see so many liberal programs that are put out there to solve a problem, and they, they don't solve the problem. We could look at, what is it, $14 trillion now we've spent on, on the war on poverty, and it's still at the same rate it was. And then that's when he says we have this history, this rich history you just spoke about, this history of the independent sector of small communities, what Edmund, Edmund Burke would call uh, little platoons. But as you said, that all ended with the Depression. How did we, how did we lose that, that mindset? How, what was this, the shift that said we, can, we, don't need, we don't need big government to come and do this, we can do it ourselves? How did we get from there to where we are now, where we seem to have this overwhelming belief, and I see it all across the country, that if government doesn't do it, it simply won't get done. Yeah, well, well, I think it's a, it's a simple answer, actually. People look at really big problems. As our economy got more complex um, and more distorted by different uh, top-down interventions, 
you know, the problems that our country faced got so big and people's understanding of them were that they were so big that only something as big as government, often state government, but really as we got into the New Deal, right, it became only something as big as the federal government is big enough to solve our problems. And I hear this all the time in my work. It's like, oh, sure, you're, you're doing this great work in communities, but how could you ever compete with the government that has, that's spending trillions of dollars uh, from, you know, from Washington, D.C.? How could community efforts ever compete with those major resources? And look, I understand this mindset. It's, it's easy to fall into this trap because communities, civil society, you know, the work that's happening neighbor to neighbor, it's what we would, what Cornell would say is illegible. You, you can't necessarily uh, quantify it all. You can't, uh, you can't sort of put it into one ledger the way you can the spending and revenue of the federal government. But, but let's be clear, communities are not smaller than government. They dwarf the size of government. They have many multiples, the resources that government can tax. Think about it. Government just taxes a, a portion, too much, but a portion of the wealth that's created in society. Government is much smaller than both the business and the community's sectors. And so Cornell has an entire chapter of the book that if people read just one chapter, it's the one that I recommend, where he goes through and just does the thought experiment. What if every church in America were to focus on helping the chronically jobless find work? If every church in America helped just two or three people to get a job, we'd have zero unemployment in the country. Uh, he does the same thing with homelessness, right? There's only 50 to 60,000 chronically homeless individuals in the country right now. Imagine if every single uh, every single nonprofit, there's like a million of them, literally a million uh, anti-poverty nonprofits. Imagine if uh, every church, synagogue, mosque helped one person who was chronically homeless to get off the streets. We'd have zero chronically homeless individuals. Uh, the 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 idea that the community sector is smaller than the 92 welfare programs coming out of Washington D.C. to me is laughable, but but Cornell makes the case. We we uh, nonetheless we you know because nobody has made the counter argument. The only game in town is if you care about people, you must support these big sweeping top down programs. And and I think that that's this is the most important project. Uh, in our movement is to provide that counter program, which that counter program is not one program. It's it's the millions of of innovative bottom up efforts that can actually solve the problem. I wonder how many Americans know that that polio, the scourge of polio, was eliminated, completely wiped out by a private organization utilizing dimes to do this. They 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 this national campaign to eliminate polio run by a private organization. But today, he says in, in this book, he says the independent sector has failed. The independent sector has failed. And he goes into why. And, and he writes, the answer is simple. The independent sector is now unreliable. It performs unevenly. Its brilliant achievements stand in contrast to miserable failures, to a stubborn backwardsness. He, he talks about them using men and materials poorly. And the reason he, he comes to this conclusion is why do we do this? 
why do they do that? Why has it failed? And it's a lack of competition is his conclusion. Could you explain that? So what Cornell is arguing, essentially, this is my words, not his. Um, what he's arguing is essentially is we have a poor social economy. So he makes this argument elsewhere uh, in many different essays. But, you know, in the business sector, it it gets more and more innovative. The financial instruments get more sophisticated and complex. And essentially, uh, to the extent that there's no distortions from government, the the financial economy gets more sophisticated in moving resources to their highest value use uh, over time. And unfortunately, uh, the social sector has not had that same kind of you know renaissance. It has not had that same kind of progress because people aren't thinking about it like a social economy. And so, you know, Cornell's basically saying, well, if if essentially the the social sector is not getting results and then you nationalize so much of it, right, you start fighting a top down war on poverty and you start building all these programs out of Washington, D.C., well, now you get a couple of problems. You get atrophy and crowd out. So it's people start saying, oh, well, if it's not working, it's it's that politician's fault or that government bureaucrat's fault. And they can sort of bring blame there. And they're not really held to account to innovate for better solutions for people and communities. And then secondly, uh, you've got the problem of, of crowd out where, you know, uh, really great bottom up community efforts are replaced because all of the entrepreneurship, it's like cronyism, all the entrepreneurship goes to chasing those government dollars and complying with those government strings rather than innovating to meet the needs of customers, meet the needs of people in communities. And so without that, without competition to better serve people in communities versus better serve the bureaucrats or the philanthropist funders, Without that um, competition, we get uh, stagnation. And so today, and the, uh, I'll wrap up here. T today, the the social sector spends way more of its time trying to push out evidence based best practices, come up with in the academy or in the halls of Congress, um, or you know, major philanthropists that do long term random control studies. They spend their time trying to push out those best practices rather than innovatively and in a in a proximate way fall over themselves to better meet the needs of the people in their communities. And as long as that's our status quo, we're going to keep failing and people are going to keep then turning to bigger and bigger top down solutions. It's just got to be more money or more programs to solve the problem. In Chapter 9, he talks about the, the independent sector's driving force. And what he, what he talks about is the fact that, that independent institutions, when you look at commerce and government, he says in the commercial sector, the motivation is the desire for profit. In the government section, sector, the motivation is the desire for power. In the independent sector, the desire is to serve others. There are those who would say that that is... That's a laughable idea that most people are selfish, uh, greedy individuals. They're not, they're not interested in serving others. And and yet he talks about what happened when people came back from the Peace Corps. They were looking for ways to serve others. Have you seen that in your work today, a, a strong desire to serve others? 
Oh, absolutely. Right. So Cornell is drawing on Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments uh, and, and again, Tocqueville. And we've lost this point. So when when we think of Adam Smith and and the the ideas around sort of enlightened self-interest in the business sector, in the economy, you know, no one bats an eye. They say, OK, well, it's not selfishness per se that drives free markets. It's enlightened self-interest that uh, the b- mutual benefit that I gain and succeed by creating economic value for others, right? So I gain and succeed by helping others to succeed. Well, this motivation is alive and well in communities, and it is perhaps the strongest human motivation. Um, people can be have an enlightened self-interest that they want to live lives of meaning and purpose. They want to be needed. Arthur Brooks is uh, you know, really consistent with this message. The fundamental human uh, uh, emotion is the need to be needed, the, the desire to be needed by others. And so therefore, there is a strong, enlightened self-interest to serve one another, to be a good husband to my wife, to be a good father to my kids, to be a good friend that shows up to help my friend move, to um, you know, to give advice to, you know, my, my sister call asking questions about finances yesterday. You know, those the motivations there to serve are because we we need to be needed and want to be needed and want to create value for others. It's a, a natural human tendency. The independent sector and the social sector's charge is to harness that incredible drive into the most productive service, right? Because often we we play out that motivation by maybe showing up to a soup kitchen and ladling soup, which might help to make sure someone doesn't go hungry that day, but doesn't do anything to alleviate their suffering long term. And so we've got so much of this activity happening, but it could be coordinated independently, not from the top down, but it, it could be coordinated so much more effectively so that we can build the the bottom-up empowerment movement to to drive fundamental change in communities. One of the things that I found really um, really opened my eyes and really made me think about things differently uh, is when he talks about the independent sector's discipline. And on page 66 of my book, he wrote, the independent sector has a natural competitor. And when you when you talk to some folks about who who's the competition, you get a lot of different answers, but very often you will not hear someone say what well, Cornell has written here that the independent sector's natural competitor is government. When you talk about going into competition against government, you know, you can you you constantly hear, well I fought the law and the law won and you can't fight city hall. And there's this weird myth that he talks about that you you can't go into competition with government. Help me understand why he saw government as the competition and how he competed with them. The fundamental point that Cornell's making that I would make today is people care about solving these problems of of human suffering and human uh, well-being. And I think far too often you know, folks who believe in limited government more broadly, they they miss that initial. We talked about this up front in the call, right? That Cornell said, "I I couldn't I couldn't uh, I couldn't choose between the false choice of either my humanity or my belief in the futility of of government programs to solve these problems." 
And and so when I think about government as a competitor to communities, it's that, you know, I believe and the research shows us out 74 percent of Americans think that poverty is a is a serious or very serious problem. You know, it, it, it ranks near the top of people's motivations to uh, support growth in uh, government. Um, yet only 5% of Americans think government is making a big impact. 81% are dissatisfied with what government has to offer. So people are, they, they believe this is really, really important. They want someone to act. They, by the way, over half think the government should do more despite that dissatisfaction. It's because people have a yearning for these problems to be solved and they want someone to solve them or something to solve them. So therefore, they turn to government because it's the only game in town. But the competition should be the, should be communities. It should be uh, citizens, the independent sector, solving these problems. And unless we can offer that as a meaningful choice to the American people, we should not expect to be. We should not be surprised that they're going to go toward the government as the solution. That's why Thomas Jefferson's famous quote. The natural order of things is for uh, liberty to yield and government to gain ground. It's absolutely true. And what Cornell is basically saying in the Unfinished Revolution uh, concept, right, what he wanted to name this book, is that if we don't want government to gain ground, we, or liberty to yield and government to gain ground, we must offer a competitor to government to solve people's problems. When he talks about going and visiting different uh, congressional hearings and what he found was so often when there was a bill to expand a, a government program or to create a government program, like 95 percent of the people who went and testified were in favor of the government program. And rarely were there people who, who opposed it. And that that comes from this idea that. You know, if government doesn't do it, it won't get done. I love what he wrote. He said, we're a nation of people who wouldn't paint the back porch without getting competitive bids, but we build national policy on the claims of a lone contender for public responsibility. I, I think that's that's brilliant. We I, I mean, I, I will today we look at how many different things on Amazon before we take take a, a purchase. Heck, even the book. The book, I, when I looked at it, uh, I remember uh, Matt, when he recommended it, he said, you need to buy it now because it's out of print and it will go up. Uh, and when I bought it, it was like $30. And I checked it yesterday. It's 52 He said, stand together alone is increasing the demand, <laughs> the market demand for this book. Um, yeah, it's my fault. I, I wouldn't just say, well, there's only one place I could buy this this book. I look at different competitors. But when it comes to public policy, too many people think there's only one one game in town and that that's government when it comes to competition free market people love to say competition makes things better competition will will allow for the highest quality product to be delivered at the lowest possible cost and when there is no competition in in the realm of, of public policy when there's no competition in in the realm of of finding and implementing solutions that so many turn to government to find it should be no surprise that the one person, the one entity, the one sector that has a monopoly on this is often runs bloated and inefficiently. And that's why that competition is 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 so needed. Yeah. Well, I worked on Capitol Hill for an, about four years uh, for Senator Tom Coburn and Senator Rand Paul. And during my time on Capitol Hill, I sat in a gazillion of those hearings and prepared my bosses for them. And 
And, you know, it's absolutely true. Basically, some expert uh, academics and a couple of providers in communities would come into our healthcare education, labor and pensions committee hearings, and they'd say, this is the solution that we need. And everyone would, you know, everyone on the progressive side would say, here, here, maybe we can add this to it or that to it and try to load it up. And But ultimately, it was a train that was moving forward for them. And then the other team would be like, oh, absolutely not. You know, we don't have any money. We're going to have to borrow from China to pay for this program. And, uh, and you know, it, it's going to they would make just arguments that, no, no, the free market should handle this. And and they just say, stop, don't do it. And the result, of course, is the, the people saying we can't afford it and we're borrowing money from China to do it. They always lost. Right. We always created the new programs. And, you know, in the words of Reagan, right, there's nothing uh, more permanent in Washington, D.C. than a new program or bureaucracy. And so, you know, I think what Cornell is saying is, well, where is the where's the heart in that from anyone who's opposing that program saying we should do this? We should solve education problems for for kids. We should uh, make sure that mental health services are available to uh, to individuals struggling or or addiction recovery approaches exist or there's effective reentry programs for people coming out of prison. But you know what? Government is terrible at that at those things. There's not a shred of evidence that government has has successfully improved the well-being of individuals in any of those areas. What if instead, you know, this group just highlighted, we did a hearing where we say this is, there's no point, we're not doing government funding here. We're going to do a hearing just to to celebrate the heroes around the country that are having an outsized impact on these areas so that others might follow their lead or call them up and ask them what made them so successful and then try to out-innovate them in their community. Uh, uh, that never happened, uh, right? And for us, that's really what Stand Together Foundation is trying to do is to invest in and inspire a better way so that everyone else becomes fast followers of our frameworks, our tools, our mental models, and they're inspired that there is a better program for solving poverty and major social issues. It's not one program. It's the millions of people interacting with each other every day to make progress in communities. Tell me about some of those programs. Tell me about how the, how Stand Together Foundation is actively competing with government? Well, there's a, you know, essentially like a, uh, last I checked, it was like $7 billion agency uh, in substance abuse and mental health services coming out of Washington, D.C. And SAMHSA, as it's uh, known, is, you know, trying to find the best cutting edge, you know, clinical research and whatnot to push out. And so their approach is a top-down clinical approach that treats, for example, individuals struggling with addiction as, as broken and in need of, of these sort of medical treatments to solve their problem. And so they treat drugs with other drugs or with expensive hospital beds. And uh, when you look at the success rates of the government approaches, they are, you know, essentially 60, 60 to 80 percent failures, right? Relapse. Uh, the average person relapsed seven times uh, coming out of these programs. And their only answer is to double down because those are the best uh, practices in this space. But uh, we went out and found the Phoenix, which uh, is a completely different approach. It is a bottom-up empowerment approach that says, that the way to overcome addiction 
is to is to believe in yourself, which often starts because somebody else believed in you. It's in relationship with other individuals. And often it's that sort of mutual accountability that drives success. And that peer-to-peer, you know, the literature is actually really strong. The peer-to-peer works better. But the Phoenix does it through physical fitness and really by reducing stigma. So unlike Alcoholics Anonymous, it's uh, it's very public. They wear their sober shirts in public and whatnot and, and sort of celebrate having overcome that adversity. And really, the magic is because an individual is needed to use their recovery story to inspire the next person to recover, that's what leads to way better results. So their relapse rates are half the best clinical programs in the country. They're well down into the 20 to 30% range. And the well-being metrics that they have for the individuals that are members of the Phoenix are off the charts. So with a fraction of the 7 billion resources, we're investing 50 million over the next five years. We believe that we can get to a million members of the Phoenix all over the country. And in that regard, the Phoenix might only be 5% of those that are struggling with addiction, uh, 1 million out of the 20 million or so. Uh, but if we could get to a million people, think Peloton. Peloton has like less than a million members. It's been exploding during uh, uh, COVID. But everybody knows about Peloton. There are fast followers of Peloton. There's, you know, five other copycats or I should say 50 other copycats. If you get to a million members of the Phoenix, you can disrupt the entire approach that people take to addiction, not just the program itself. But now that I know about the Phoenix, I interact with my family members who struggle with addiction differently because now I've got the mental models and frameworks of the Phoenix in my head because I know about them. And so it's that kind of disruptive movement that we believe is possible at Stand Together Foundation. And we believe we can inspire that across, you know, every major social issue you can think about in communities. He talks about in Chapter 12 how to compete with government. And he gives four steps. He says in business, in business to compete effectively, uh, businesses have to do four things. They have to find out what people want, develop a product to meet that demand, produce it economically, and then sell it vigorously. And he says the independent sector needs to take those lessons from the business sector and apply it. So when I'm listening to what you talk about when it comes to the Phoenix, uh, he says the independent sector needs to do the same things. They need to one research. Well, I think I, there's not a whole lot of need for research to recognize that there's a substance abuse problem in the United States, is there? I mean, that's fairly obvious. Then you, he says development. Find the best ways the independent sector can meet those needs. And you're saying we found that right now in the Phoenix. Number three is mobilization. Get the independent sector to adopt these new methods. And then four, information sell what it accomplishes to the public. Help me understand how we're doing those things with with the, the example you gave with the Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, and well maybe I'll give you another I'll give you two examples that Safe Families for Children um fits that framework really well as well. So, you know, the American people care about the problem of addiction, right? If it's you know, there are 20 million people struggling with addiction today, there are uh, estimated 20 million more in recovery. And so therefore are, you know, still, you know, when you're in long-term recovery, it's still an issue that you need to work through. And so pretty much everybody has a loved one 
who is struggling with uh, the scourge of addiction. So this is an, a, a problem that people care about. And so we then went hunting for the best social entrepreneurs, right? Instead of think about what the sort of best practices are or studying how to clinically solve addiction, we went out hunting for those social entrepreneurs that were making a difference. And so in Stand Together Foundation, we've worked with, you know, probably a dozen or so uh, dedicated addiction recovery organizations that are having an outsized impact. Then from within that, we saw the potential for the Phoenix to really grow and scale and have that disruptive impact. So we helped them with their management culture. In fact, we've embedded leadership. A senior leader from Coke uh, named Ski Ahmad came over to be their chief information officer and help them build their market-based management capability internally. We have high-end market-based management coaches helping Scott Strode and his team to build the strategy and the culture needed to grow across the country. And we're helping them to market their efforts so that they can recruit staff, volunteers, and people all over the country. And we're including major uh, philanthropists as part of the Stand Together community to help launch these programs in their communities. That's the mobilization piece. And then we're telling the story, right? So the information piece, we're going to, we, we, we write white papers on the Phoenix's success comparatively. We're doing all that work, but we're also uh, inspiring people that this is a better way. And we've had millions of people watch inspiring Phoenix videos. I, if I could give one other example, Save Families for Children briefly fits that same rubric. The problem in foster care is that we are, uh, we've got this huge child welfare problem where we're taking way too many kids out of their families, and those kids have horrendous results once they're in the system. But there's no effort to prevent the incidence of foster care. And so the only solution out there is the coercive government sector, right? So in, uh, you know, a teacher is worried about a kid's you know, hygiene and clothes, and they start and they basically kick off an investigation with child welfare services. And at the moment that investigation starts, there's there's an acrimony between the family and the course of state because all the all the government has is a monopoly on the use of power. Well, say family says, well, what if there was voluntary solutions that came in at that moment and supported that family? Perhaps the family just needs clothes. Maybe they just need uh, someone to watch the kids so that the mom, single mom can get a, a second job to make a little bit of extra money. Maybe they just, maybe they do need addiction recovery services. They need a host family for 60 days to, you know, uh, get, uh, recovery services, um, or attend Phoenix classes or whatever it might be. And so we've been helping save families to take that approach and scale it across the country. It's a community-based voluntary solution. They're wildly successful. 93% of the families they work with stay together, um, and they reduce foster care incidents dramatically. In Illinois, where they started, they, they essentially get the credit for taking foster care incidents down from 52,000 total kids in the system down to 14,000 currently. It's, it's really exciting. It, it might be 17,000 currently. Uh, really exciting. So we're helping them develop that approach, build their management culture, grow their organization. We're going to market that and recruit volunteers all over the country. It's mostly churches and synagogues and faith communities that provide the volunteers. And then we are telling that story 
not only to the public to inspire them, but to public officials and, and governors and heads of human service departments so that everybody knows there's a voluntary solution to this social problem that's far better than the coercive one. One thing that I, I think is very important to really understand and have a good grasp on is this idea that there are other institutions in society. We, we've talked a lot about the fact that people only see government as, as the, the sole provider of solutions. And there are other key institutions out there. There are the key institutions of education, of business, of community. Would you mind talking a little bit about the roles that they play in the independent sector? Yeah, um, I think Cornell probably, first of all, meshes the the institution of education in uh, with communities quite a bit. And so for our network, we have uh, we have, I think, helpfully um, disentangle those a bit just because there are enough separate motivations for how we educate kids to, to work on it as a dedicated institution. But it's worth noting that our institutions are just frameworks. So they're kind of like the market-based management dimensions. They're just a way of organizing our mental models. But he probably views those you know, similarly, and we can apply a lot of these same mental models to how we educate kids. But uh, I want to take a second on business because Cornell is a deep believer in free markets, in mutual benefit uh, of economic profit. And, uh, and the, the role of communities should be to, to play its productive role alongside the other voluntary sector. And he's very clear. In fact, later in life, he kind of blurred the lines between business and communities more in his writings because he believed that the, the voluntary sectors, the ones that have a, a mutual benefit motivation, whether it's economic or service, they have so much in common that they are natural partners, right? So businesses thrive when communities help people re-enter from prison so that they are prepared for work, right? Or if somebody is chronically homeless, when communities support them and help them to get back on their feet, they are then prepared to be productive uh, workers in the economy. And so uh, Cornell saw that as a natural partnership versus government is sort of often acrimonious with those voluntary sectors, right? Because its only tool is the blunt instrument of coercion, it often undermines the productive sectors of, of business and communities. So I don't know if that's it gets at your question directly, but Cornell definitely had had a, a, a vision for a, a very sort of uh, integrated set of voluntary sectors versus the the course of one. When I've talked about the idea of, of there being solutions outside of government, it, it you've seen this as well, I'm sure, this this mental model. It's almost like a, a wall that, that prevents people from, from seeing other possibilities. And one thing that I've done that I've had a lot of success with is simply asking a question, what if government didn't do that? And that has has allowed people to see other possibilities. I don't know if it's because when you ask someone a question, they want to answer it. But I remember being in situations where we were talking about, I think at one point it was education. And this person I was speaking with only saw the solution to education being in government. And I said to them, well, what if government didn't do that? What would the other key institutions do? I said, would parents just put up their arms and say, well, I guess my kids are going to be stupid? Or would they do something, right? And this allowed this person to sit back and think, well, what would what would communities do? How would they handle that? 
and it opened their eyes to to the, the fact that there is an independent sector out there that can solve these problems. I'm curious, how do you talk to people about the idea of the independent sector and about solutions outside of government and what what successes have you had? Well, I like your framing of what if government didn't do that. Um, but the, mo- the most important part of that, of asking that question is to, you know, it's the old uh, lawyer trick. Don't ask the question that you don't know the answer to. Um, I think what's been most effective is having an answer to that question. And so um, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, I was talking to a, a leader in the foster care space who was trying to go in and help churches to develop foster care ministries. It wasn't Safe Families, it was a different one, but, but they were trying to go in and help churches uh, care about serving orphans uh, or kids that had been separated from their homes. And, you know, there's a huge group home problem where so many kids are going into these group homes where atrocities happen. And so this person and their effort, they were trying to get churches to say, this is your charge. You've got to do this. And the uh, the the pastor, it was a massive megachurch. He was the executive pastor of a massive megachurch. And the pastor said, why would we do that? Why would we get involved in foster care? The government does that already. Like, that's it's not necessary for our church to do it. And, you know, that breaks my, as a Christian, that breaks my heart, right? The, the idea that the, that the church would abdicate core principles of, of caring for the poor, caring for the orphan and widow, that the church would abdicate core responsibilities because the government was doing it. So here you could ask the question, well, what if government didn't take their course of approach to child welfare? Sure. But instead, I think the positive flip of that is, what if the what if faith communities played their productive role and led? What if parents and families played their productive role and and took responsibility over solving social problems? What if every one of us dug deep and said, what could I do to be a force for good in the lives of my community? If we all did that, the the, the if we stopped abdicating, I think we would shrink the responsibility of government quite a bit. So I don't know if that helps helps answer your question. What if government didn't do that? But I find it very effective to challenge people and say, you know, what if what if hoping someone else is going to solve the problem isn't good enough? And what if you challenged yourself and your networks, the organizations you're involved in, the communities, like the faith communities you're a part of? What if you challenge them to be leaders here? I like that. I like that because one thing that that I believe is true and that I've seen this in, in various areas where I've spoken, people will not argue with their own data. I mean, you could sit and tell them. I mean, you could sit and tell them all day long, here's here's the facts, here's what we could do. But if they come up with it on their own, they're more likely to believe it. And your story, it, it triggered a memory that of a conversation that I had with a state legislator, and I'd like to, to close out the interview with this. I was having this conversation and he seemed sad. And I said, what's going on? He said, I had to stop referring people to my church. He said, I I have constituents come to me all the time and they have all these problems. And I I was referring them to a church to help them with these solutions. He was seeing the solutions in the independent sector. And he found out that when he would send people to the church, the church spent 
all of its time signing them up for as many government programs as they qualified for. And that's all they were doing. And that broke his heart. And so my question to you is, can you can you convince me that things are getting better? Because when I hear things like that, it makes me worry that this mentality that only government can do it is so entrenched, it's almost impossible to come back from. Tell me it's getting better. Well, I'm very optimistic about the future. You know, Cornell has a famous quote uh, that I love to, it's up on the wall of a number of my uh, colleagues' offices at Stand Together Foundation. And he says, communities are a consequence, which means, you know, communities aren't sort of just a thing. They are just the spontaneous order of people uh, serving one another. And so, communities are a consequence. They are happening everywhere, all around us. And there's so much good happening in the world, so much good, and so much more is possible. The The need in the sector is for social entrepreneurship. In the business sector, when someone is hoping to solve a problem and they look around and nobody else is solving it effectively, that it, it's, it inspires them to then go want to change it. So in this case, when the state legislator sees that the church is not playing its productive role in solving these problems, he should, you know, in a, in a vibrant, uh, you know, sort of social economy, that is a signal for him or others to be social entrepreneurs and drive change. So while I fear that we have been losing some of that over time, there is an enormous opportunity to remind people that that's how we solve problems. And Cornell lays out a playbook for us, and we've used it to a T at Stand Together Foundation. In fact, we started using it before we even knew that this was his recommendation. So we need to do uh, just a few things really well to reinvigorate the social economy. And I, I hope my encouragement to you and, and any listeners is what we're doing at Stand Together Foundation. And that's that if we're going to change the, the, the sector, right, and reinvigorate it. We need to renew the management practices in the social sector. We need, we need social entrepreneurs to view themselves as entrepreneurs creatively solving problems in new and different and better ways. And so we're training our entrepreneurs on market-based management and trying to proliferate this growth mindset across the sector. And we're finding that to be really successful. We're not only doing it with our groups, but telling others about it. He secondly talks about measurement, that if you're going to have a social economy, we need better profit and loss signals. And today the measurements are set up so that, you know, big government bureaucracies are the only ones that can do the RCT studies to, you know, show some, some results. We're working on constituent level feedback measurement systems that we believe will start to create more bottom-up social economy and really excited about some of those innovations that we're driving through both measurement and technology. And then finally, it's you can reach so many people today with storytelling and inspirational opportunities. You know, we've got millions of people watching the videos that we're producing and, you know, I, I believe it's beginning to drive uh, change in public opinion and goes back to the old uh, Fred Rogers. You know, when, when you see despair out in the world, uh, he said his mom gave him the advice to look for the helpers that are helping and you'll be encouraged. 
And uh, I think today when people are despairing about our country and there's a real competition for the future of our country, what ideas are going to win, we have the helpers helping. And uh, it's an enormous resource for us to inspire broad change. So I'm encouraged and I hope your listeners are encouraged. Once again, thanks to Evan for taking the time to talk with us today about reclaiming the American dream, the role of private individuals and voluntary associations by Richard C. Cornell. If you enjoyed the conversation, I hope you'll take the time to leave a review of the podcast on whatever service you're listening to. And if you have any questions about the book or about any of the other podcasts you may have listened to, please send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.